and turn to Nehemiah chapter 9. Today, we are going to try to answer two key questions. The first is, how do you know when real revival has broken out? What are the marks of it? Lots of places claim to be in revival. We all, as Christians, pray and long for revival. Today we're going to look at what real revival looks like because there is no more perfect demonstration of it than the revival that occurs at the end of the story of Nehemiah. And then the second question is, what role does confession play in revival? What is confession? How do I know when I've really confessed in such a way that God has heard? And, and what role does confession play in the bringing on of revival? So those are the things we're going to look at. But at this point in our study, I, I think it's good to rewind a little bit and make sure we're all still on target with the big picture of this series. You may recall from our introduction before Easter Ezra and Nehemiah, which in the Hebrew Scriptures are a single book, tell the story of the return of the children of God, the nation of Israel, to the Promised Land after 70 years of exile due to generations of disobedience. And as they come back to the land, the people of God are charged with a threefold restoration. The first is the building of the temple and the altar, and Ezra recounts the story of that. The second is the rebuilding, the restoration of the walls. The third is the renewing of the people, of the culture. And so we have taken that threefold mission of the people coming back to Jerusalem as a model for our mission. Our mission, the mission of the people of God, is threefold. It's about the church, the city, and the culture. Our equivalent to the altar and the temple is the gospel and the church. Part of our mission, and often confused as the exclusive mission, is to join Jesus in what he declared he would do when he said, I will build my church but he wasn't building it as an end to itself. He says of that church that he's going to build two things. He says, I will give them the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And then he says, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So in participating in Jesus building his church, we have a greater purpose. We're not the end, we're the means. We're the means of the continuing mission of Jesus because we are His body on earth today. We are His hands and feet. And, and they're twofold. The first is the idea of the keys to the kingdom. The key that we hold is the gospel. It's the means by which people enter into the kingdom of God. But then we're on the move. The gates of hell will not prevail against us. We are called to push into the kingdom of this world and claim it back for the king, to bring God's kingdom, God's reign, to the world around us. The two images that Lou helped us see when we looked at the urban nature of Scripture, let me encourage you to go back and listen to week two of this series, when Lou did an excellent job laying out the theology of city in Scripture, and you will understand what we mean by that. 
And what we saw is that there is historically the city of man, and the primary metaphor, the primary representation of the city of man is the city of Babylon, and then there is the city of God. And the primary symbol of that, of course, is Jerusalem. We are a people that are at once citizens living in the city of God because we are in the kingdom, right? The kingdom has come because Jesus has come where God reigns in Christ. That's the kingdom. And yet the kingdom has not fully come. That has to come in the future when Jesus returns. So we are at once living in the kingdom. At the same time, we're living in this world. Whereas in the Old Testament, Babylon and Jerusalem are distinct geographical locations and distinct experiences, for us, looking at who we are in this city, we should really lay those two on top of one another. There's the spiritual reality of the city of God. The whole people of God in the city. That's the city of God in Worcester. But at the same time, we are living, obviously, in the city of man, in the city of Babylon. And so, in the exile, Jeremiah gives the agenda to the people of Israel when he says, build houses, go into business, have families, work for the good of the city of Babylon. Pray for God to bless the city, because when God blesses the city, He'll bless you as well. And that's why we see this second idea of restoring the wall, working for the good of the city, as part of our mission. The gospel is meant to be both lived and preached. How do we live it? Jesus told us how to live it. When He said, the kingdom of God has come, the Spirit of the Lord is on me, and He has called me to preach Good news to the poor, justice to the oppressed, to bring sight to the blind. And he described the kingdom of God as being comprised of those who responded to those who were in prison by visiting them, who were naked by clothing them, who were thirsty by giving them something to drink. That's the gospel. It's not all the gospel, but that's the hands and feet of the gospel. People experience the living Christ when the body of Christ shows up and blesses them in the name of Jesus. See, somewhere along the line, we turned preaching the gospel into a debate about theology. I'm going to convince you about these biblical truths, and if I can convince you, if I can win that argument, you're going to become a Christian. But it doesn't work that way. The Holy Spirit has to be transforming hearts and inclining them. Otherwise, the gospel's foolishness. So how does the Holy Spirit show up in people's lives? <laughs> when we show up in people's lives, think about it. We show up and they experience the presence of God, the love of Christ, and that opens the door for the proclamation of the gospel. So they go hand in hand. Growing the church, blessing the city, and then ultimately that brings about the renewal of culture, the renewal of culture. And that's when real revival takes place. And so that begs the question, how will we know when revival takes place? This passage, this section that we're in right now, chapters 8, 9, and 10, actually shows us three critical marks of real revival. In chapter 8, as Lou talked about it last week, there's a returning to the Word of God to actually preaching what the Word of God says. 
One of the interesting things to watch is all these very clever things that TV preachers are saying that everybody's quoting as though that's biblical wisdom because some preacher says it when actually it's just a really clever idea. That won't bring lasting transformation. Preaching the Word of God, letting the Word of God speak for itself, explaining what it means, and then responding wholeheartedly so that it changes us. And that leads to what we're going to look at today, which is an honest and authentic repenting of our sin, which then leads to what we're going to look at next week in chapter 10, which is then a renewing of our covenant with God, a recommitting of ourselves to being God's people, bringing His glory, living in obedience to Him, and that leads to a great transformation. Here's the thing. When real revival occurs, it never happens just in the church. It always overflows into culture and brings about real change. When you look at the historic awakenings over the last 2,000 years, what you see is that it wasn't just the Holy Ghost showing up in church and everybody having this new fervor for worship and Christians experiencing God's dramatic power in their midst. Real revival always brings about what the word revival means. Restoration. Restoring things that are broken, not just in the church, but overflowing into the culture. And we've shared about some of the incredible transformations that occurred. I don't mean to suggest that real revival isn't also marked by a powerful working of God in his people, but I want you to recognize that that is not real revival. That's just an indicator that God's at work. It always produces change. And when it's Real revival, it produces lasting change. Some of the things that are still good in our society grew out of the Great Awakenings in the 17 and 1800s. We are still benefiting from the impact that God wrought in our culture in those Great Awakenings. And this particular revival that we are studying right now was so powerful. Israel up until this point, had constantly failed. They, they never got it right. They'd fall into sin. They'd fall on God's mercy. God, because of his covenant and his promise to them, would bring them back. And just as soon as they got comfortable, they'd fall into sin again. And it led to this 70 years, two generations of people in exile. And they finally get their act together. We don't know exactly what happened, at least scripturally, we don't have an account of the next four centuries. They are called the 400 silent years. But what we do know is that after those 400 years, in what Scripture calls the fullness of time, when Christ comes to earth and the curtain is lifted on Jerusalem four centuries after this awakening, the temple is strong, the worship of God is strong, the identity of the people as the people of God is strong. Isn't that what we want? Isn't that what we want? We're looking for that type of lasting transformation. Now today, we're going to dig into that second aspect of authentic revival, which is true confession, real repentance. And so as we look at Nehemiah 9, we become spectators of what we're calling a solemn assembly. Let's read these opening verses 
On the 24th day of the same month, the Israelites gathered together fasting and wearing sackcloth and having dust on their heads. Those of Israelite descent had separated themselves from all foreigners. They stood in their places and confessed their sins and the wickedness of their fathers. They stood where they were and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day and spent another quarter in confession and in worshiping the Lord their God. Standing on the stairs were the Levites, Jeshua, Bani, Cadmiel, Shabani, Bunny, yep, Bunny, Sherebiah, Bani, and Canani, who called the loud voices to the Lord their God. And the Levites, Jeshua, Cadmiel, Bani, Hashbaniah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shabaniah, and Pathahiah. And they said, Stand up and praise the Lord your God, who is from everlasting to everlasting. Four aspects of this solemn assembly. First, there is a corporate demonstration of grief, it's very powerful. They all together fast, separating themselves from their physical need in order to embrace their spiritual need and hunger. They put on sackcloth and they put ashes on their heads. Just imagine the whole congregation by the thousands showing up all dressed this way. What they are saying is that we are all in this and we are all humbling ourselves before God. The second is a gathering for only Jewish people. This isn't racism. They separated out those who were part of their community who were not of Jewish descent because this was about God's people doing business with God for the sins of their past. Now, this is important. I want you to get this. Only the people of God can do business with God in a way that brings about real Revival. Only the people of God. And it has to begin with us. We have to own our stuff. We have to be the ones that change. You know, we're criticizing so many people out there for ruining our society. You know why culture is not transformed? You know who's to blame for that? We are. Massachusetts, you can authentically say, was started as an experiment of Christian culture. It was started by Puritans, and you could not charter a new town if you did not have a church at the center of it. And so all the congregational churches that are at the center of every historic town in Massachusetts are there because you couldn't be a city if you were not a Christian community. And you know why we're not that anymore? You know whose fault it is? Any guesses? Yeah, it's us. We're to blame for that. I don't want to overplay that. I'm just saying, let's get serious. Let's understand that we need to make the changes in our hearts, and then God can use us to make the changes in our world. That's the plan he's always had. Does that make sense to you? The third thing we have, again, is the centrality of God's Word. They read it for a quarter of the day. By the way, that's our, that's our new plan for Sunday mornings. A quarter of the day we're going to read the Bible. A quarter of the day we're going to confess. That doesn't excite you? <laughs> no? Okay. We'll reconsider that. And then that produces this crying out to God 
in confession and worship. And that's the rest of this chapter. We see what real confession looks like. And so I'm going to read it. Blessed be your glorious name, and may it be exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens, and all their starry host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to everything, and the multitudes of heaven worship you. You are the Lord God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and named him Abraham. You found his heart faithful to you and you made a covenant with him to give his descendants the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Jebusites, and Girgashites. You have kept your promise because you are righteous. You saw the suffering of our forefathers in Egypt. You heard their cry at the Red Sea. You sent miraculous signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all his officials and all the people of his land, for you knew how arrogantly the Egyptians treated them. You made a name for yourself which remains to this day. You divided the sea before them so that they passed through on dry ground, but you hurled their pursuers into the depths like a stone into mighty waters." By day you led them with a pillar of cloud, and by night with a pillar of fire to give them light on the way they were to take. You came down on Mount Sinai. You spoke to them from heaven. You gave them regulations and laws that are just and right, and decrees and commands that are good. You made known to them your holy Sabbath and gave them commands, decrees, and laws through your servant Moses." In their hunger, you gave them bread from heaven, and in their thirst, you brought them water from the rock. You told them to go in and take possession of the land you had sworn with uplifted hand to give them. But they, our forefathers, became arrogant and stiff-necked and did not obey your commands. They refused to listen and failed to remember the miracles you performed among them. They became stiff-necked in their rebellion, appointed a leader in order to return to their slavery. But you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Therefore, you did not desert them, even when they cast for themselves an image of a calf and said, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt. And when they committed awful blasphemies, Because of your great compassion, you did not abandon them in the desert. By day, the pillar of cloud did not cease to guide them on their path, on the way, nor the pillar of fire by night to shine on the way they were to take. You gave your good spirit to instruct them. You did not withhold your manna from their mouths, and you gave them water for their thirst. For 40 years, you sustained them in the desert. They lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, nor did their feet become swollen. You gave them kingdoms and nations, allotting to them even the remotest frontiers. They took over the country of Sihon, king of Heshbon, and the country of Og, king of Bashan. You made their sons as numerous as the stars in the sky. You brought them into the land that you told their fathers to enter and possess. 
Their sons went in and took possession of the land. You subdued before them the Canaanites who lived in the land. You handed the Canaanites over to them along with their kings and the peoples of the land to deal with them as you pleased. They captured fortified cities and fertile land. They took possession of houses filled with all kinds of good things, wells already dug, vineyards, olive groves, and fruit trees in abundance. They ate to the full and were well nourished. They reveled in your great goodness, but they were disobedient and rebelled against you. They put your law behind their backs. They killed your prophets who had admonished them in order to turn them back to you. They committed awful blasphemies, so you handed them over to their enemies who oppressed them. But when they were oppressed, they cried out to you, and from heaven you heard them. And in your great compassion, you gave them deliverers who rescued them from the hand of their enemies. (laughs) But as soon as they were at rest, they again did what was evil in your sight. Then you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they ruled over them. And when they cried out to you again, you heard from heaven, and in your compassion you delivered them time after time. You warned them to return to your law, but they became arrogant and disobeyed your commands. They sinned against your ordinances, by which a man will live if he obeys them. Stubbornly they turned their backs on you, became stiff-necked, and refused to listen. For many years you were patient with them. By your spirit you admonished them, through your prophets, yet they paid no attention, so you handed them over to the neighboring peoples. But in your great mercy, you did not put an end to them or abandon them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. Now therefore, O our God, the great, mighty, and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love, do not let all this hardship seem trifling in your eyes. The hardship that has come upon us, upon our kings and leaders, upon our priests and prophets, upon our fathers and all your people from the days of the kings of Assyria until today, in all that has happened to us, you have been just. You have acted faithfully while we did wrong. Our kings, our leaders, Our priests and our fathers did not follow your law. They did not pay attention to your commands or the warnings you gave them. Even while they were in their kingdom, enjoying your great goodness to them in the spacious and fertile land you gave them, they did not serve you or turn from their evil ways. But see, we are slaves today, slaves in the very land you gave our forefathers so they could eat its fruit and other good things it produces. Because of our sins, its abundant harvest goes to the kings you have placed over us. They rule over our bodies and our cattle as they please, and we are in great distress. This is the word of God. Now, I want to point out that The story continues. This day goes on from this moment of absolute confession to restoration. And next week we'll see that. But for now, we want to enter fully into this act of true confession and observe some important things about it. 
One thing you notice in this corporate confession, and this is key, sin is not the main topic. Did you notice that? It's there throughout. But what's the main topic of the confession? Who's the hero of the story? God. There is more said about God, his character, his righteousness, his mercy, and his actions towards his people. There's far more confessed about God than there is about sin. And that helps us understand what confession actually is. It's telling the truth. When you go to testify in a court of law, what do you say? Do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? You see, the word confess is to acknowledge what's true. All that is true. Our use of the English word is very similar to the Hebrew because we have our confession of sin, but we also have our confession of faith. We are declaring what is true. And so what we see in this act of authentic and true confession is that it's not just about focusing on our sin. We have to simultaneously and even more robustly focus on the character of God, the mercy of God, and the goodness of God. That's what makes this a complete confession. We are not just telling the truth about ourselves. We are telling the truth about God. It's interesting. Let me show you the structure of this confession. It goes back and forth between a confession of faith in who God is and a confession of our moral failings. God's greatness in creation, covenant and redemption. Then the people's hardening of their necks. God's grace and then the people's idolatry. God's mercy and the people's disobedience. God's discipline and salvation and the people's evil. God's deliverance and the people's stiff necks. God's patience, judgment, and mercy. This confession begins and ends and is permeated throughout with a recurring confession of the character, the goodness of God and how He has acted always faithfully, always justly. Why is it so important for true confession to occur to both profess what is true of God even as we try to profess what's true of ourselves? I want to offer two reasons why this is a true and complete confession. And the first is that this type of confession helps us see the profound nature of our rebellion. You see, most of us tend to look at our failures and shortcomings in comparison to other people. And there's always somebody worse than us on our scale. Comparing ourselves, going back and forth between the absolute holiness and goodness of God and ourselves puts our sin in real perspective. In the early 1980s, I led worship at an international men's conference in Atlanta, Georgia. At that time, Steve Barkowski was the quarterback of the Falcons. How many know Steve Barkowski? Number one draft pick in 1975. He became a Christian. A friend of mine named Dan DeHaan, who uh, is now with the Lord, discipled Steve Barkowski. They wrote a discipleship book together. And also during that time, most of his offensive line came to Christ. And they were in the front row of this crowd. Now, at that time, 
I thought of myself as a pretty good athlete. I had played college basketball. It was a small school, but I was the team captain and leading scorer. And as a youth speaker, I loved to get out there and bang it around with the uh, high school students. And I, I thought I had game. So I couldn't wait to get my shorts and sneakers on and head out to the basketball court. And guess who's there? Steve Barkowski and his offensive line. I was a second ball being bounced around. I felt like a pinball. I had never hit up against such hard bodies in my whole life. <laughs> I couldn't move anybody. I was helpless. And all they had to do was like do one of these things, and I flew <laughs> across the court. I got a hold of the ball once, and I was so exhausted that I tried to shoot, and I airballed it. And they weren't even basketball players. Okay. So when... You compare yourself with other amateur athletes, you think too highly of yourself. <laughs> Get on the court or on the field with real professionals, it's a reality check. That's what complete confession does for us. We're looking at God and then we're looking in the mirror and saying, oh my God. We're not comparing ourselves to each other and giving ourselves a break. You compare yourself to God there's no break. You understand the absolute nature of your brokenness and you are able to confess it deeply. That's the only way we can see fully the nature of our failure is to see the glory and the holiness of God. And the second reason why this is true and complete confession is that this type of confession gives us the courage at the same time and hope to cry out to God for forgiveness. Because His holiness also means He's completely good and merciful. He's the very God who brings about judgment against sin, but is quick to forgive and quick to show mercy. And as we rehearse that, we have the courage to approach Him. What an amazing paradox. And this is the nature of spiritual renewal. A picture of the holiness, the majesty, the otherness of God destroys us. It tears apart any remnant of our self-righteousness and our self-justification. It destroys it because none of us can stand before a holy God. None can survive. And so we are left on our faces before him in utter admission of our fallenness and brokenness. It's the holiness of God that conquers our hearts. But it's the graciousness of God. It's the love of God that heals our hearts. And so revival is a process of being broken by God's greatness and restored by his goodness. Broken by his greatness, restored by his goodness. Because God is good, I can come to him as I am and know that I can be healed. I can count the words of John in his first epistle, in a very well-known verse, let's say this together. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I can trust that God is going to be faithful and just when I make a good confession. Jose puts it this way. It's so powerful. Come, let us return to the Lord he has torn us to pieces. Huh. 
but now He will heal us. He has injured us, but now He will bandage our wounds. That's the God. In His holiness, He destroys all pretense, but then in His mercy, He brings full healing and restoration. That's what we're longing for. Imagine, if we could go there as a people, everything we've seen God do in the last five years would be nothing but warm-up exercises. We would be changed, and God's mission in this city and beyond would be accomplished. 